So you got a whole uh, alpha team now, don't you? But you, but you have a wealth of knowledge that is beneficial to a lot of people, and it we can move the needle. How often do you hear a hunting podcast? We talked about this. People relate to this. Hello, everyone. I've got my good friend Cody Greenwood uh, with the Trad Lab on the mic. Cody and I have done a few podcasts together. We have done this podcast a few months ago, but the audio was horrible and we're finally getting back to it. But uh, Cody, how's life uh, up in Canada right now? What's going on? Uh, So far, so good. We're busy. I'm in Moose Jaw, Canada now, and I'm obviously railroading while at the same time marking onyx as much as i can as i move through canada it's a really awesome uh place to be and kind of to, to learn i've got a lot of natural resources up here that i don't have access access to in oklahoma or kansas oh yeah 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 so tell everybody a little bit about what you do um i i mean i obviously i could ex- explain it but i'll probably screw it up like what you're all about where they can find you who you're working with that type of stuff and then what we're going to present everybody with today Okay. Uh, what I do for a living and my background in education is investigative analytics, which means uh, large companies hire me to go investigate uh, their businesses and identify where they're taking losses, financial losses. And um, <clears throat> I've trained, so currently I work for the railroad and uh, my side hustle is obviously the trad lab and I can be found on Instagram at the trad lab. And I kind of apply the same skills that I do in my profession to my my hobby slash passion, which is traditional archery and or hunting. Some of it can now be applied to just hunting, not, not limited to traditional archery. And I perform, uh, I guess the best way to explain it's kind of myth buster studies on some of the old ways of traditional archery. And we do a lot more busting than we do confirming. So it's kind of fun. And uh, I guess if you've ever seen the, the, the movie Moneyball or read the book Moneyball, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the nerd in Moneyball, right? That changed the baseball. When baseball quit using intuition and gut feelings and started using statistics, uh, rightfully so, the game got a little bit more boring and predictable, but now the team's got more better with less money. And that's, that's essentially in a nutshell what I do. I work with the push archery, and um, I perform studies on uh, archery equipment and deep the deep dive into tuning so we have a tuning series out there at the push archery center of knowledge and i do a lot of podcasts with them in terms of trad lab investigations but i'll do a podcast with anybody i've been on several podcasts but that's kind of my center so you also uh with the push offer uh some very in-depth uh tuning info that's out there as well right yeah, I did a really d- deep dive into tuning. Traditional archery doesn't have the energy that compounds have, obviously, right? And the biggest concern people have, um, and it's really not, it, it shouldn't be their biggest concern, but it's energy. Their biggest concern, based on the studies I have, it's hitting what you're aiming at when you go to traditional archery, not energy. Having said that, to make the most out of the energy we have, I have found tuning to be by far the most significant factor. So I, I did a deep dive into tuning, and we created a, a a master class instructional that's um, literally just precision tuning for the diehard bow hunter. That means the 10 percenters are going to be drawn to this and you'll be able to have your arrow coming straight off as as soon as it leaves your string and you gain a lot of uh, lethality with that, with penetration, but you still have to find the animal and hit the animal. There's no doubt about it. That's currently available at the push arch at pusharchery.com under their uh, 
their their pack series, which is their center of knowledge, where you'll have Tom Clum's work, you'll have uh, Rod Jenkins' work, you'll have Shot IQ, and now you'll have uh, my tuning series there available. So with um, kind of a little bit more in-depth on my side of things with uh, with Cody, having hunted with him, hung out with him, you know, you've rubbed some people the wrong way at times, like uh, I'm very capable of doing, but Cody is a, a data person and, you know, he and I may BS about our own personal perspectives and thoughts or whatever, but, but what, what he is very good at is just presenting data off of different, um, I say different, he will gather that data from very unknown or known people in the industry, talk to outfitters, guides. And when I, you know, this isn't hyperbole or what it, it is exactly as it happened. And he collects that and comes to a conclusion from that data. So one of the things before we dive into this study that you've recently worked on was you went to, when you're going over lethality over distance, right? With shot distance, lethality, you went to a tournament and basically went to and marked different targets to figure out what the lethality was on a traditional bow. And I'm probably hacking that up, but explain that a little bit more just so people can understand this. <clears throat> So one of the first studies I did, because you know you're, you're trying to determine what's more important, energy or hitting what you're aiming at, right? That's that's the big debate right now in the in the world of marketing. They're winning because they unlike us think that it's the type of broadhead or energy. And the reality is you've got to hit them first. So what started that investigative path is I went to a ETAR, which is the Eastern Traditional Archery Rendezvous, where you have hundreds and hundreds of archers, traditional archers, and I took two or three hours out of my day and I set on two different targets. One was a large broadside doe 3d target um you know how some of the does for different brands are really small this was a very large doe broadside at 22 yards and i kept track at uh, how many people could hit the doe basically score an eight or better hit the doe in the vitals if you will that's lungs are in and um anybody that was elderly a child or walking around with a new bow that they were just trying out i excluded from the data there were several hundred data points and 28 percent of people could hit that doe in the vitals at, at 22 yards. Um, there was also a coyote target at uh, 12 or 14 yards, and that, that percentage went up drastically. I don't remember the exact percentage, but you're, you're talking 60, 70 something percent hitting a much smaller target in the vitals. And that was one of my first eye-opening um, investigations where I, I realized that hitting the animal is a bigger challenge than killing the animal, if, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so, you know, when, when Cody says that, um, and the, you know, a lot of, we will bounce things off of each other throughout the year. We, we may go two to three months without talking and I may talk to Cody for an hour and a half while I'm driving, but occasionally we'll text back and forth, uh, a lot more when I was, um, you know, obviously shooting a stick bow, whether that be fletching configurations or single bevel broadheads or three blades or whatever, um, you know, just kind of, again, confirming data or getting my thoughts on what data he has collected. And we've pretty much paralleled. We've never been really too far apart on anything you've found or what my thoughts were, you know, over time. And, and definitely I, I got, and, and, and you have definitely got, uh, criticized, um, about this, some of the lethality stuff. And, mm. To me, the number one thing, obviously, is always hitting the animal, right? It's accuracy. like you, And 
with the stick bow, I, I, I found that a lot of people were really focusing, focusing on a lot of different things that maybe weren't as important uh, to me as hitting the animal. Um, and when I say that, you did a study on fletching. And I think at the time I was shooting four, three, five inch feathers maybe. And you did a study and I think, I don't know what three, three inches was, I don't know, whatever, nothing, there wasn't any big difference or whatever. Um, and there was a ton of people scratching their feathers off and people, you know, the trad vein thing. And, but what you gather is just data for that. So talk about the fletching study a little bit. Uh, what you found with that before we move on to this one. I found that people don't like to hear fact-based research. <laughs> that was my biggest finding because I, I was brand new to, to being in the, in the public. And I realized that I had to learn how to deliver my message it was the biggest finding, but the, the results of that study was I, I shot arrows off of uh, different diameter arrows off of one bow, both out of my hands and out of a shooting machine over 40 yards on both calm days and uh, days that had a very strong um, crosswind to 20 to 25 mile an hour. And I tracked both the cast the trajectory of the arrow and then also how the arrow would deflect off, off of target and just the performance and how the fletching and configuration uh, affected that. I also performed a sound analysis because really the liability of fletching, whether you're talking about compound or traditional archery uh, tech, there's a trade-off that you're going to make between stability and sound, right? And there's several decision points that go into that. If you want to put a mechanical on, you can have less sound in the back of your arrow, right? Because you can use uh, less aggressive fletching. So I did a study uh, that was comparing the sound of the arrow as it approached a target. And it was the sound. The, I tried to calculate the moment in time where the arrow was from the target when it became louder than the ambient sound outside. And five-inch uh, feathers were louder than the ambient sound outside that I chose a normal morning day uh, around 12 yards, which is a long that's – a, that's a lot of time. When you're shooting a slow bow, that's a lot of time for an animal to react. I found the perfect recipe to be um, – in that, in that particular test to be two-inch feathers, four-fletch, 180 degrees, which I could get to around uh, eight yards, if I'm remembering correctly – to the target, which is a significant improvement. I took those level settings and shot it over that 40 yard range in the wind and found what was good for sound was also good for crosswind. Then I moved to broadheads and I found that with my particular tune and my particular form, two inch four fletch was plenty. Um, taking it a step further, which really angered people was um, the, the traditional veins that AAE were, make they came in three, uh, three inch and I ran that configuration and it proved to be even quieter, picking me up almost two more yards of ground because obviously things make less noise than feathers and they were just as stable. And if I remember, they, they just impacted a little bit higher. And that's when I made the determination that there was no significant difference between shooting them and feathers. And it was a, certainly a good substitute for the rain. And, uh, they, they offer, uh, they're an asset in terms of sound. And that was kind of the summarization of that study. And that, that broke the internet for a few weeks and I kind of put me into a tailspin and um, you were a big part of, you know, stabilizing that, but that, that was the first big MythBuster study. Gotcha. So what do you want to talk about uh, today? What, what, what have you, what data are we looking at? Uh, that type of thing. So, 
So today we have um, submissions from our community, both on the compound side and traditional archery. And this, we have a site uh, that I'm working with the uh, guys that are working with you. I think actually they're working on building your, your website. They, they were from, uh, from Method and they created a website for me called killdata.com. And at killdata.com, we were encouraging people to go enter their kill data so that we could analyze it later in, in the year and, and see the signals that we're going to walk through. I did this um, the prior year and this year. So I have two, I have two different years of submissions. They're gathered uh, over different platforms, and I can, can compare those. So, but like for 2022, I received 551 submissions. For 2021, I had 176. So what we're going to be going through today specifically are 551 experiences from the field. This isn't work in the lab where I'm trying to simulate the field. This isn't um, me being hypothetical. This isn't me sharing an opinion. I'm taking 551 experiences from the field and I'm graphically expressing them in graphs and quantitatively uh, analyzing them and I'm putting it in front of subject matter experts like you. Out of this mix, 63% of the entries were compound and 11% were traditional. So it's, it's more relevant to a broader group. It's not limited to traditional. If you're a compound archer listening to Caparo cast, this, this will be of interest to you. But I want to go over that, kind of leverage the wisdom of the crowds, because this is very different than any marketing tagline or any study ever done. We're taking actual experiences and just saying, all right, here's what happens in the field. And people can make up their own mind. I'm not trying to bias the data in any way. Gotcha. So when you said a minute ago, you said 60, how, what percentage was compound and what was trad? 63% of my data points are from compound kills. 11% are traditional um, in this data set. Okay. Uh, so that's only 74%. Where's the rest? I pulled out. I pulled out. I had to scrub shit like if you shot the doe in the head and it ran 800 yards, that data point's not in Things that don't make sense. Yeah. Okay. And like... You know what I mean? I oh, yeah. scrubbed out things that just don't make sense. Yep. Nope. That makes total sense. So that's a good catch, though. Um, well, I I was just thinking. I was like, he had to have pulled pulled some bullshit data out of there. Is what I was thinking. But I just wanted. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's there's some stuff in there that's, <laughs> or you know, some someone that shot it through the heart and both lungs and then tracked it. Well, what happened? Never kicked it out of its bed. They were like, okay, this this is going to skew everything. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So, well, kind of take it from here. And then if something gets a little goofy, confusing or, or something I'm not understanding, I'll, I'll uh, spin you down a little bit and we'll, we'll go over it again, but kind of take it away. Yeah. That's what I'm counting on for you is to kind of be the, the translator here for me. And then I'll, I'll just, I'll do my thing. When you, when you look at the mix here, the dominant mix here is around a white tailed deer. Um, where there are statistical or practical differences in, in terms of what I'm saying versus animal, I'll break that out for you throughout this podcast and say, okay, we're going to talk about elk now. And we're going to talk about elk specifically because elk are very different when we start talking about how far we're shooting the animal. Almost every other animal is identical in terms of range. But when you start playing in the elk game, it looks to me like you need to have the ability to, to send one uh, long range. And, and I'll point that out. So having said that, when we talk about um, you know, the, the mix, we have primarily deer, we have a lot of pigs. And then we, the next to that, we have elk, but this data is certainly biased towards one animal. The, the wild exotics I've left in here, if there's a wildebeest, it's in here. If there's a water buffalo, it's in here. Uh, if it's weird hits like, uh, knuckles, you're going to see two or three knuckle examples. I've left it in here. 
when I say I scrub the data, I don't scrub the data so it manipulates the output. I scrub the data when one data point would skew the entire analysis, if that makes sense. So that's why you, you just have to kind of rely on my, my education and background to allow me to do that. When we look at um, the, the average draw weight, which is the first comparison that I look at, it was, it was interesting for me. For traditional archery, your average draw weight is 48 pounds. And your, uh, your average draw weight for uh, compound, which was not a surprise to me, was 68.6 pounds. So uh, there's a lot less variation in the compound world, almost everybody shoots. Um, there's a vast majority of people are shooting seven, around 70 pounds. There's some 65s and there's some 80 plus, but it's a very tight distribution where you'll see me comparing traditional archery shots here that range pretty heavily from 40 pounds up to 60, but the majority of it, of course, is between 40 and 48. So there's massive differences in energy that we're gonna be talking about here. Extremely significant differences in energy, and we're not gonna see that play a part or be a significant factor in our goal if I define our output as recovering the animal. And I, I want to point that out because it's, it's, it's larger. It's, it's less effective than I thought it would be. Does that make sense to you, Aaron? Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. So I, I think you remember the day I text you and I'm like, Hey, you don't have to answer this, but did you see more or less penetration when you killed animals with a tradbow versus your compound? Because I, you know, it's, um, things were showing up that didn't make sense. And then you would reply back, well, I'll actually, yeah, I saw this. I'm like, okay, the data makes sense. But when the data doesn't make sense, I have to rely on subject matter experts. So just uh, tell them what I told you from your memory. Well, uh, on your memory on that, because this signal started showing up. And of course, I thought something may be wrong with the way I either collected the data or the way I was analyzing the data. So I, I reached out to you and you actually told me that you got better penetration with your recurve. And we've never talked about that publicly because it will probably create a whole nother series of podcasts, but that's a very significant statement because uh, you have several hundred data points under your belt. And um, I've been saying for the last two or three years since I've gone public with, with my work that I, I, I don't have issues with, with penetration. I keep dropping my hunting weight to see when, where the, the bottom line is. My most recent was, you know, the antelope was a 41 pound bow that I got to pass through on. But when you had told me that you were you had more penetration with your trad bow than compound, I, was, I, I started to believe the data a little bit more. But it was very surprising to me. So to cover that a little bit, because like I just had Gillingham on the podcast, and he's uh, you know lighter weight. Uh, you know, the, I, he said something at one point that I didn't say anything because I didn't want to argue with him. The lighter arrow wins every time, which is not true. Um, I mean, I would say when I say a lighter weight arrow you know, extremes wise or whatever, a, a moderate weight arrow wins every time exactly. looking at everything, right? You go too heavy, you're, you're, you're kind of, uh, there's diminishing returns on both sides. So, but when I say that I got received more penetration, that was from one primary thing, the broadhead. Um, now I know how to tune and that's everything being an equal. I can tune a, a stick bow and I can tune a compound. So flight's good. Um, you know, distances a little bit farther, obviously, sometimes a lot farther with a compound. But, you know, arrow weight between my compound and my stick bow was 75 grains roughly to 100 grains difference, meaning I'm at 450 to 475 roughly. Sometimes I'm a little over that with my compound. And with my stick bow, I was generally at 565 to 500. And I'd went into the sixes, but on average, closer shots is one of the, the things. But the number one thing is a fixed blade 
contact broadhead. Um, you know, and what people do not realize or, or, or when I say that, cause I'm a fan of mechanicals, the momentum that gets sucked out of your arrow when a mechanical opens is, is hard for people to wrap their head around. Um, I would zip through and I zip through a mountain goat with my stick bow all the way through, came out of its front legs. You saw me hit a bison charging us at 40 and I buried it to the, f- the feathers um, with not a high-end broadhead. It was, it was a Magnus. Um, you and I both have shot a lot of different, what's that? On a frontal shot. Yep. On a frontal. It was, it was coming straight at us. And, yeah. And uh, buried it to the fletches and m- many other things. And so I always on, when I say always, it never, it, I would have never imagined when I started hunting with a stick bow shooting a whopping 170 to 180 uh, feet per second with a relatively moderate arrow, right? I mean, f- 550 to 575 is not that heavy, but it's not light either. It's, I would say that's average. Uh, zip through just about everything I shot at within reason, where with a compound, I'm shooting 75 to 80 pounds. Um, but that mechanical is the biggest thing. So anyway... When you when I told you that, I don't think you were expecting that answer initially. No, I was not, and that led me down the path of, um, you know, getting a bunch of mechanicals and pushing them through different materials with my uh, push force meters, and you know, it's 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 hundred. In some cases, it's a few hundred pounds more resistance, but in almost every case, it's well over a hundred pounds more. And I want to make sure that <clears throat> we don't send a message here because it's. You have to talk about what's statistical versus practically significant. If you can't kill something with an expandable broadhead, it, it, there's something wrong. You're either not hitting it in the right spot, but there's something wrong. There, I'm not saying that mechanicals aren't effective. Mechanicals are obviously very effective practically, but they do require more energy and uh, significantly more energy. But I would take a mechanical, if I shot a compound, which I do not, so I'm kind of speaking way out of turn, but if I had to make a decision, and the trade-off is, okay, I can't get this compound tuned perfectly. Would I take something that's slightly out of tune and I can get my mechanical, my veins to compensate for that and shoot a mechanical, or would I, which requires more force, or would I shoot a fixed blade out of tune? I would choose the mechanical every time. Gotcha. If that makes sense. That's how significant Daryl's flight is uh, from what I've seen. But that's that's the comparison between experiences that I, that I, that I leverage subject matter expert, experts for. So as we go through these experiences, that's what we're comparing is if it, we were, if we had several hundred people in a room telling their stories about last year's kills, I'm just recording all of those and putting them in, into something that we can analyze. The number one factor that surfaced from that for last year and the year before out of everything that I've studied here, which is broadhead, bow type, arrow type, energy level, draw weight, you name it, every factor that I have studied, by far, the number one factor is something you can't buy, steal, or borrow. It's animal behavior. The very first graph that I put up here when I go through this analysis is the density. This is whitetail only, but the whitetail only kills have clear signals before and after rut. The other signal that you can see is the October lull, which is actually based on the data that I see, not a lull, it's just deer responding to hunter pressure and kind of disappearing for a bit. But you can clearly see that more, more, more white, this is shocking, write this down, more whitetail get killed during, whitetail bucks get killed during the rut versus not. 
There's this little spike of density of nice bucks killed the very first week of season. These are the people that do their scouting and do their homework. And then basically everybody else is a lucky hunter during rut. Followed up by that is a massive cold front that came in January last year. And we see another spike there where mature bucks are being killed. But the number one factor for did I hit the animal and bring it home or recovery, how far did it go is rut. So a buck that is in, in the middle of rut or engaged in rut will run farther than a buck that's not in rut. And this has also correlated with time. So it's, you know, less cover. You can, you can associate this with two or three things. I'm associating it here with uh, an animal being in rut or not in rut. Also later in the season, you can, you can clearly see that the does are becoming more skittish. And uh, I can, I attribute that to, um, to some of the signals that we see. It doesn't matter what you're using, what bow you're using, compound or traditional, what time of year you're hunting this animal and how it behaves dictates your recovery more than anything else. And I think that's really important to keep driving home. And this is not where I started my career as trad lab, right? I was a gear guy up front. Now I'm a, now I'm a between the ears guy, control yourself during the shot and, and understand animals kind of guy. And that's, that's what this is showing. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, totally. Um, but so people, it's making sense to me, but I've also know which direction we're going. So you, um, well, all right, let's go into this in more depth. So what exactly were you tracking? So you said, you know, during the rut, the animal will run farther. Like, were you tracking, okay, the arrow hit here, the animal did this, this yep. is the distance it went, yep. that kind of thing. Yeah, we asked people to give me where they, what they were shooting, the weight of their, their bow, the weight of the bow, so I can understand total energy and total momentum, the type of broadhead they were using, not to the level of detail that, that would have been more beneficial. Next year, the guys are adding uh, add data kills. You're going to be able to pick your exact broadhead so I can get down to the actual design elements of the broadhead that matter. But we can see if it's a mechanical or a fixed, and we can, we can see if it's a wide or, or one and a half inch or two inch, things of that nature. Uh, the angle of the shot, you know, quartering away, quartering two. That's we've recorded that. That's very significant. The, the quality of the blood trail, the recovery distance, and um, whether you hit bone or not uh, is also uh, captured in that. <clears throat> and then there's also you know, room for for notes there. And there may be a few other things that I'm missing, but every factor that would you would consider coming into play for recovery is is recorded here, including time of year and whether or not it was in rut. Gotcha. So yeah, I'm gonna in the distance of the shot. Yeah. So like if you, what, well, so you said, uh, you know, obviously the rut made sense, you know, and then, uh, they can run a little bit farther during the rut. They're all jacked up on Mountain Dew. Was there anything else that stood out, um, that, that, you know, you talked about the pass through thing that, that stick bows had a higher chance of pass throughs than a mechanical out of a compound. Um, was there anything else that stood out before we go any further into this? That was just a wow factor for you? The, the uh, and we'll get to all of this, but the blood trails matching the comfort zones of the animal and the recovery, the, where you recover the animal matching their comfort zones stood out to me uh, is a big aha. I think people will find that to be very, very interesting. Gotcha. Well, keep go ahead, we can, keep her we going. Can get to it pretty quick. Take it from here. All right. So, av compound average shot by animal I listed here. So, really quick, uh, if you if you just look at an average. You're, you're looking at a per deer, 26 yards. For elk, 44 yards is the average. And, of course, average isn't the greatest thing in the world. 
but it gives you a really good idea. And really, when you look at white-tailed deer versus every other animal on here shot with a compound, in terms of distance, they're really the same. What really stands out is elk. And uh, when I, after I look at this data, whenever you, whenever you kind of glance at it, you can see that the elk hunters that are successful, there's a large density of elk that are killed at six, between 60 and 80 yards. Everything else is basically with a with a compound is basically 40 yards and in, and then the main density is around 25, 26 yards, right? Um, and that's, uh, so if you're playing the, what this means to me, if I were going after elk, I would definitely be in, my entire investment in my equipment would be after the long game because it's a high probability you're gonna miss opportunities if you can't shoot out to 80 yards. Uh, with everything else, if you're getting into the compound, I don't know if you need to have two or three bars hanging off of it to hit at 26 yards. So you you can make trade-off decisions where you like, but the total average is 26 yards for uh, compound and 15.9 yards for traditional archery. And the average for traditional archery matched last year's data as well. Traditional archery, you're going to shoot at 15 yards on average, no matter what animal you're shooting at. Compounds, you have a completely different capability you need to build your equipment around when you're going after elk versus every other animal. Within that, I put up here the arrow weight. And when you look at, especially around elk, because it's where I hear a lot of the debates around big arrow or, or not, I don't see in this data set a single person being successful with a 600 plus grain arrow past, uh, where does it stop, 45 yards. I don't have any data that shows kills. There's a tr the, the high density long range shots on elk, 60 to 80 yards, is right at 450 to 500 yards with the high density being around 475. Does, does, does that make sense to you as a compound person? Oh, yeah. Yep. So really the tagline at the bottom of this slide that I put together is the dominant compound advantage is accuracy, not energy, right? Like being able to reach out and touch somebody or not somebody, something at 60, 80 yards is a massive advantage. And we see that the recovery rates and all of that uh, won't show, but it's very impressive what compound elk hunters are capable of. And uh, really, if you're not hunting elk, you can, you can build that bow for the for the short game. Next up, we have uh, how far away did you find the animal? And this was really, really uh, surprising to me. If I were to ask you, well, I'll just do it right now. So, Aaron, if you, in your mind, if you had, if I had to say, all right, Aaron, create zones and yardages of when animals become just pick a whitetail, when a whitetail or any animal really, they're roughly the same. When any animal becomes more and more aware of you. So, like, if you had to rate one to five in terms of awareness. If they're 80 yards and there are five, they're, they're, they're not paying attention to you versus 60 versus 40 versus 20. When would you say the big significance would kick up between when animals start becoming aware versus when animals are usually on top of you and they, and they know you're there? Uh, if I'm understanding you correctly, I would say 50 yards to me, that 50, 60 yard yep. is like the red zone where you're like, okay, keep, keep your crap together because they're really aware at that point. That's right. And if you had to go up one more level as they're closer, when is it just, if you do anything, they're on top of you and sub, they're aware of you. If you sub, had to go one more level. To go. Man, sub 20, um, you know, for, I, I mean, that's easy to say, obviously sub 20, but like the difference in noise, things like that. And that even at 30 to 20 after 20 or 15, everything matters from, I mean, it doesn't, right. anything, I mean, squeaks, what, I mean, they will blow straight out of their bed for a pant leg rubbing together at 30, not so much, but sub 2015, it's huge. 
So the, the recovery uh, data that we received from the community here matches that statement to a T, and I've even color-coded it in red as you described it. So as, as you're engaging animals at 80 yards, right, <clears throat> 60 yards, 40 yards, you can see animals are laying down to die in those exact zones. So what this tells me is that if you put a good hit on an animal and you're making a hellacious amount of noise or you're impacting them with something that impacts them heavy, they're going to run further before they're comfortable. But animals are basically laying down to die on good hits the moment they feel comfortable. Very few animals, I mean, you have to have a great hit, an outstanding hit to keep them within 25 yards. The majority of animals recovered, the vast majority of animals recovered, are between 40 and 70 yards with the extreme density between 40 and 60. And we all know that as soon as you're engaging animals, their awareness level is, their bubbles of awareness, if you will, go way up matching that. So, I, and I want to add a little bit of context to this. Um, while you're tracking an animal, it seems like, and I, it's like dog years. If you go 40 while you're tracking, it seems like 210 or whatever, right? It, the actual, when I say that, meaning I have talked to guys and come in to help them and they're like, man, this thing's gone a long ways. I don't think we're going to find it. And I'm like, man, it's only been 170 yards. I tracked it, like tracked it on my GPS, tracked it on my watch, whatever, they're like, what? And I'm like, 175 yards on a blood trail seems like an eternity. And an animal can do that in a split second. And so when people are hearing 75 yards, some people might think, man, that's not possible. But 75 yards in the woods for an animal to run seems a lot farther than it is. And my elk last year was south. It seemed like it went forever. But the reality was it ran downhill and then rolled, you know, it probably ran 75 to 100 and then rolled another 60. But it took us five minutes to find it, seven minutes to find it, you know, whatever it was. But right. when, when you go back and look at it, if you think the bull bugled here, it when they're bugling at you, it seems extremely close. But then when you're blood trailing, it's farther away. So. I, I strongly encourage people that are listening to this when they give Cody the data, really go back and pace it off. Do long strides. Get as close as you can because if you guess, you're probably going to be guessing wrong. But anyway, go ahead. No, that's a good point. So the other thing that I, I point out here when I, when, I, when I built this analysis, because this is important for people where they spend their, their resources, including their time, penetration is not a leading indicator to recovery. Penetration shouldn't be our goal. Our goal is recovering the animal, right? And, I, and I, I do the same thing in my main business. I go to the railroad and I go, all right, guys, our core business for the railroad is this. It's not this. Because it's so easy to get distracted from your core business. And you start focusing on submetrics that are easier to manipulate so they're more attractive. And then you look up two or three years down the road and you've, you've moved away from your core. That may be a little bit broader conversation than you want on this podcast, but I'm constantly pulling business units back to their core. And I find myself having to do the same thing with hunters because it's easier for somebody with a product to manipulate a submetric like penetration or blood trail or size of entry hole. Size of entry hole is no leading indicator to recovery. Blood trail, and we'll get into this later with detail, is, is surprisingly not a leading indicator to recovery. Uh, penetration is not a leading indicator to recovery. These are all submetrics that we have created. They're all good submetrics, but you have to stay focused on what our core business is. And what we're trying to do as hunters is recover the animal. 
And um, when we when we get into this, we're going to see where they fall, which is between six, uh, 40 and 70 yards, with a high probability of them falling within that range, and, and what drives that. But that's that's why I'm focused on recovery because that's our core business as hunters. So you don't win bonus points for well, he's still walking, but he's got a big ass hole in him, right? There's no there's no there's no participation points for that. So, um, and I want to make sure because I'm not taking Cody out of context here. We've talked or whatever. When you are someone like me that doesn't see blood very well, I want more blood on the ground to be able to see it, to, to find it. But, but so actually, I guess what I'm saying is make sure and put enough context into that. Meaning, you know, some people are like two, you can't say that having two holes in the body cavity is a bad thing. That's not what Cody's saying. Put a little bit more context. No, in that's what I'm saying. no. So uh, two holes are certainly better than one. But whenever you aggregate everybody's experience. Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) Well done. Yeah, I'm very classy. (laughs) Um, uh, I'm going to take the high road. The um, the two two holes create more blood. More blood on the ground is is certainly better. It's not worse. There's no doubt about that. My hunting partner is colorblind. He needs a lot of blood on the ground, or I spend all of my time tracking for him. I completely understand that, and, and that makes perfect sense. But when you look at this data, the people with great blood trails, and I'll explain it in detail. We're going to get into this later, but I'll dive into it now. It's not a great indicator to recovery because if it's not, if the animal's dead at a high density between 40 and 60 yards, most of the time, po- folks either hear it crash or see it crash. Most of the time. That's what this data suggests. Helen Keller could find that animal, Right. I mean, you, you don't need a blood trail if you've heard it crash, saw it crash, right? You, you, can, you, can, you can go without that visual indication. Blood trails are great because it's the only connection we have to what we want to find and what we haven't found yet. So it's a very emotional experience to track blood. And if you don't have blood, you're pissed off at the broadhead. And if you do have blood, it's the greatest broadhead in the world. But this suggests, just looking at the data, not that they're good or bad. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you can't predict if you're going to recover that animal based on the broadhead you choose. If you're basing that choice on the size of hole it makes or the average blood uh, trail that it creates. And you can't because the data is skewed because people are visually identifying their animal, not the blood. And I would also, I would point out that whenever the animal travels over a longer distance, blood trail becomes very significant. And what you learn there is we need to train ourselves to not look for the animal, but to look for blood. Does, does that make more sense? And we'll just skip that slide later, but that's, that's the tag slide to this. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And so I just want to make sure, cause people like to hear at times what they want to hear and not what was actually said. So I want to, you're never going to argue. Nobody's ever going to argue with the fact that two holes are better than one or one giant entry Absolutely. hole is awesome. But when it comes to finding the animal, it, it shifts things. So, and, indicators. Yeah. Right. All right. Go ahead. Uh, next up, I have uh, the analysis of recovery where I'm just comparing compound versus traditional. And of course, I am biased here, so I, like, I can't lie about that. I was excited to find this finding, which is why it's in here. Um, our average, uh, our median recovery for traditional is, is 50 yards, and the median recovery for the people that uh, take the easy way out, uh, like yourself, uh, with less uh, testosterone and capability, their median is 60 yards. And I thought that was really, really interesting because energy kills, right? If you believe energy kills, then you would be shocked to see this. And not only that, 
if you look at your third quartile, which is your 75th percentile, it's 80 yards versus 90 yards. So it kind of follows itself. And the, the distribution is tighter for traditional archery versus compound. I would, so I would, now I'm going to move out of the fact. Go ahead. No, I would agree with that. I would say the number one three reason is a compound bow is loud. Um, yeah. And when I say that, I would say loud or impact of the mechanicals. Yeah. Make them run further. Uh, yep. And, and the, so those are my theories. I, I would say there's three. And I was arguing or talking with Gillingham about this because, you know, his version of one, you know, it's not the arrow, it's the bow or whatever. You can't argue with the fact if you've hunted with a stick bow, you will get more than one shot at animals a lot. Well, you can't, you know, that's with feathers or trad veins or, or veins at all. And a feather is much louder than a vein, but that's because the bow is extremely quiet. Where with a compound, it's kind of a one and done thing. You get one shot. I think it's a combination of both. And somebody actually, a buddy in Florida was talking about this. I think it's the arrow and the bow, um, the noise of the bow and the noise of the arrow because it peaks them up, right? They're now, they heard the bow and now they're listening. And then the other thing, you're you're correct. I have shot animals with a compound with a fixed blade and more or less zipped through them so fast they bounded a little bit, stood there and died. Same situation with the mechanical, but that blunt force impact and what it takes to open that mechanical up it does not zip through as fast as a, as a, as a fixed blade and they will run. I mean, like a hot damn, like they're coming out of there fast because of that broadhead opening. And it's more, I don't want to say obtrusive, but I mean, you think about it, something zips right through you. You're like, what the hell just happened? Where if something hits you, opens, rips your flesh open and what they're going to run farther. And it's just, it's just common sense. So the noise of the bow and the broadhead, I agree with. Yeah, that, that certainly stands out. And, you know, you have to, you have, you have to appreciate that. Um, that if anyone doesn't really understand that, you could push like a two inch sever through your thigh and then push an RMS cutthroat through your thigh and see which one has, requires more force. And it stands out. And if you actually visualize that, it, it helps you look at broadheads and go, all right, which one of these is going to, you know, require more force because some of them require hundreds of pounds. I, I would so I think it's both the same. And if you, it, no, when you say hundreds of pounds, I just from my testing to yours, mine's more red. Foot pounds, foot pounds. Sorry. I would I would say foot pounds of pressure on average for a mechanical uh would be over a hundred. I'm correct on that, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. And well, over a hundred and then you can get sub seven on some of these others. I, I have seen, I believe, um a hundred and eighty five pounds for a rage broadhead um i think it was 185 yeah, i can't believe you said the name i can't believe you said the name yeah well yeah. fuck i don't do it. it is what it is <laughs> um, jesus christ how do they sell this to people uh well people can't assess risk as, uh sever takes quite a bit as well and i shoot uh, a sever and and when putting this into the like where the the rubber meets the road and and i'm not quite as geeked up as is uh, cody on testing but Having a 120-yard range in a pro shop at my house with lots of targets and plywood, if you shoot, and people get really wrapped up on the micro-diameter arrows and all the different things, and, and, and but if you truly, and it's I've never been able to quantify it on an animal, when I say this, meaning different diameters of arrows and penetration, I can't tell on an animal, meaning there's no time where I could tell a micro did better than a... Two four six. 
But what I can say in testing, shooting through 3D targets or a plywood, but let's say 3D, a prime example, go get the standard run-of-the-mill $250 backyard buck 3D target. Shoot a 70-pound bow with a 465-grain arrow and a cutthroat two-blade or an iron wheel. You're probably going to get a pass-through on that target, if not buried to the fletches, on a brand-new target. And I mean brand-new. You go to a 246, same situation, you're going to lose 8 to 10 inches of penetration roughly. You go in when I'm talking about this, meaning with a fixed blade, everything the same, going from micro 204, 246, you're going to lose penetration. You can quantify that. You go to now doing the same thing with a mechanical, you are talking about a 70 plus percent reduction in penetration with a mechanical that you can see on a target. So as I'm saying this, I am a fan of mechanicals. I'm a fan of fixed blades. I like mechanicals for a compound. It is fucking noticeable, and I mean really noticeable. So if you got a crappy 3D target, it's going to be hard to tell, but if you have a new one and you want to, you know, throw it on the cross and start winging arrows at it, have you found what I'm saying to be somewhat close to your findings with what I'm talking about so far? Yeah. No, that's, that's absolutely everything aligned so far. And even the trade-off I have graphically expressed here and I calculated through this this public data because the trade off it's important to talk if one's better, okay, what well, how much better is it? And the trade off isn't that isn't that extreme, which is why I said if I didn't have a perfect tune, I would choose the mechanical. Uh, here your recovery, your highest density recovery, you're not your not your central tendency, but your highest density is around forty yards for a trad. And everything that we're talking about is confounded with trad brought in and so forth. And then you go up to sixty to sixty five with a compound. So you're talking about twenty yards difference in recovery. So the, the trade-off there, it is 20 yards. I'll take 20 yards. But the trade-off there uh, may be well worth uh, taking if you can shoot the mechanical with a better – if you can achieve a better tune with the mechanical and you can hit what you're aiming at with the mechanical, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I'll stop interrupting you. Proceed, and I'll probably interrupt you here in a minute. All right. So this <clears throat> this – what I'm about to say is, is – a is a is a signal it's not a fact so when you pick up a can of copenhagen and it said this may cause gum cancer no it, it, it fucking causes gum cancer we just can't study babies from from birth to death and, and no one will let us bet it out and validate it so i have a high degree of belief of what i'm about to say but i can't account for all the variation so i can't say it is an absolute fact just to, to make sure i clear my name but what i do see in this public data is that uh when you're shooting, and we'll just bounce this off your experiences, if you're shooting pre-20 yards versus post-20 yards with trad, there's a significant difference in uh, recovery, meaning this is where sound comes into play. I don't think the deer are hearing the bow quite as much. This is my theory, past 20. That statistical breakpoint for a compound is at 40. If you're hitting something uh, at 40 or greater, your recovery is slightly better. There's a there's a signal there. It's not a fact that I can say, but it's slightly better than if you were shooting under that. Does does that make sense? Oh yeah. And if not, yeah. can you clarify it? No, no, that makes sense. Okay, so uh, when we start talking about you know the sound of the bow or the arrow, obviously the sound of the bow plays a part, and we were starting to see it here. But it's ridiculous to spend our time arguing which one. If you don't think a prey animal is going to react to something hissing and moving at it at a high rate of speed, you're out of your mind. We need to account for both and mitigate both in sound. But we do see some differences in recovery there, and it's uh, 
it's pr pretty impressive uh, as far as I can, from what I gather. I, I didn't think it would be that big of a deal. The, I wish I could reliably shoot past 20 yards so I could bet this out a little bit better, but I have trouble hitting what I'm aiming at on targets they're willing to move. When you look at the density of recovery, uh, the second most significant factor, if we're just looking at how we recover the animal, believe it or not, is also something we can't freaking buy, borrow or steal, unfortunately. Uh, but it's the it's the angle of the shot, the shot angle. So is it broadside? Is it quartering away? Is it quartering it to, you know, those things. That is the outside of animal behavior. That is uh, the biggest factor. So, and I don't think we're giving anybody groundbreaking news here. Uh, if Chris Perino listens to this, he'd be screaming at his his radio and calling, you know, no kidding, but we don't talk about this very much and you can't buy anything to compensate for this. Your broad hide, your broadside shots actually have more variation than, uh, than I think people realize. And I think the biggest error in my data, and I know it's there, people think they get double lungs and they're actually getting single lungs. And I say this because there's so much variation in recovery on broadside. I don't think we're always broadside. I think there's some weird angles there that are causing hunters to think they're broadside, but they're not. So the broadside shot is really loose, and I would never bet my money on it. But the house always wins quartering away, aiming for that offside leg. It's by far the most lethal shot that you can take, uh, according to this data. It is very, very, very reliable, stable predictable and in control. There's only three outliers in the entire subset. And then I do hate to admit this because I walked around <clears throat> telling everyone you were wrong about it and it's, it's tough to deal with. I don't have a lot of data points, but the frontal when placed is the tightest and, it, <laughs> and it, it's, it's, it's pretty effective. It's extremely effective. You, you have one data point over 100 yards for recovery. Everything else with a frontal is in. Now what this data doesn't show, and it's important to note this, I should have done it earlier, it doesn't show us where we've screwed things up, where we've missed, where we don't recover. These are only success stories. But quartering away uh, with that offside leg uh, line of impact is by far your best choice. Broadside's very sketchy, and believe it or not, frontal's pretty damn good, really damn good. So to add to this a little bit, obviously, because, you know, at the end of this, I want people to understand, you know, what Cody's talking about, but also understand it with the ability to assess what, what, what arrow system broadhead they may want to shoot because of the data Cody is giving. Um, and when I say that, meaning if you're somebody with a 27 inch draw shooting 65 pounds um, and you're focusing on, man, I need to pump up the, my bow weight, right? I need, I need more bow weight. I, it's just not fast enough. Well, that may not really be the most important thing. In fact, it's not accuracy is going to be the most important thing. So generally when you increase bow poundage, you are going to decrease accuracy for a lot of people. Um, and, and the, the thing is with all of this is like, okay, the, the reality is, is if you hit the animal, right, they're generally going to die between 50 and 75 yards where things get super confusing is the mechanical, um, I don't want to say debate, but it's a debate, the mechanical fixed blade debate, the heavy FOC debate, all these different things. And a lot of them are blown out of proportion. And the data you found kind of shows that. But anyway. Yeah, it absolutely does. Cause, and we'll, we'll dive into it here uh, shortly. But focusing on 
focus marketing makes us focus on things that may not be as significant as, as we would like to think. But here we can see total in the data set. You had 55% were broad, uh, broadside shots or reported as such. And quartering away was 19.9%. But the quartering away proved to be far better in terms of recovery uh, being slightly less. The other thing that I'll point out is you can what you spoke to earlier, you can see a clear reporting bias here. Uh, people report in 25, 50, and 100 yard increments in this data set, which means my data, if I'm telling you there's a signal that's more minute than those gaps, it's really questionable. So that recovery gap between the trad and the compound is, you know, 20 yards. Well, my reporting bias is 25, 50, and 100 yards. So my, my data is not quite precise enough for me to say this is absolutely better, if that makes sense. Having said that, when I look at shot of angle or angle of, of, of entry and shot angle, it's, it's absolutely practically and statistically significant. The house always wins. The odds are always better when you take these uh, quartering away shots versus broadside. And that puts you behind the knuckle and you have to worry less about big bones, all of that good stuff. Now that makes total sense. When we look at broadhead type, this is what people will want to hear the most about. And there's a least there's actually the least to talk about here. I, I have categorized this this year into four categories. Next year, I'll have the exact brand of uh, broadhead listed, so I can I can break it down into every type of design characteristic from tip to blade angle and all of that good stuff. But the four categories I have here are two blade expandable, two blade fixed, a multi blade expandable and a multi-blade fixed. A multi-blade expandable uh, or fixed is kind of confusing for folks. It's anything with anything other than two-blade if it's fixed, if that, if that makes sense. So uh, an RMS uh, three-blade versus and a cut and the iron wheel would be considered multi-blade fixed, if that makes sense. And what you see here, I'll run through the, the medians real quick. For a multi-blade fixed, it's 60 yards. For a multi-blade expandable, it's 65 yards. For a two-blade fixed, it's 60 yards, and for a two-blade expandable, it's 70 yards. Those are the central tendencies of all four. There's more variation, slightly more variation, in the multi-blade expandable, but statistically speaking, there's not a significant, there's no evidence of a practical advantage from one over the other. Remember, I'm not saying mechanical advantage. That's a submetric. I'm saying in terms of recovery, you're not going to pick one of these. With the data that I have, now if I have 5,000 more data points in two years, maybe maybe we'll see something. But as it stands right now, with the several hundred that I have, I wouldn't put my mortgage on uh, broadhead design being a, a leading indicator to recovery. Those are all very similar results. Okay. I want, yeah, that makes total sense. The only thing where this, again, is how well you see blood. You're talking about recovery not ease of recovery. And when I say that, I want to... Not ease I, of recovery. That's right. Yeah. So that's where that's I want people to really understand. We've got blood. We got blood data here. And it's, it's a real, there's a really cool story there. But we, so we'll, we'll get to that. It's a, it's a good one. Gotcha. But in terms of you're not going to buy a recovery with your gear. You're going to get recovery by making the right shot, getting the right angle, and moving across that animal into the, the offside leg. Right? That's, that's what this suggests. And we've got enough data points here that we don't have confidence intervals taken care of statistically, but we certainly have a reasonable and prudent person to look at this and go, mm, this is pretty telling. Don't tell the marketing people about this because there's, you know, they're making millions of dollars. Next up is um, 
the the broadhead and the shot distance if you look at two blade uh all the four different categories your average shot distance for two blade expandable is 24 yards uh for two blade fixed is 18 yards for a multi-blade expandable it's um 24.5 and for fixed blade it's 20. so you can kind of that's kind of useless because you're confounding this with bow type not broadhead type is what i what i believe when you look at um whitetail only to clean it up because you don't want to compare the recovery of say a moose to a whitetail or or a smaller animal because the the two may there may not be anything you can infer from that so when i scrub all these animals out and i just look at whitetail um the two blade expandables uh, 72 yards for recovery 57 yards for two blade fixed 65 yards for multi-blade expandable and 60 for multi-blade and again, you're kind of getting into the bow versus the broadhead. When you're diving into blood trail effect, which is where you're wanting to go, uh, which is how I should have structured this, we had people rate the blood trail efficacy, the quality of the blood trail one through four, right? And, you know, is it bad or is it good? And I know that's not a very great uh, operational definition, but you don't want to write a paragraph to have people read it to quickly fill out on a little thing on their phone. So it's just, one through four, is it good or bad? And when we start when we start looking at this, um, how far away did you find the animal and your blood trail is bad versus your blood trail is good? If your blood trail is good, your recovery, so to put simple, less than 200 yards, blood trail is not critical. I believe this is because, uh, or less than 100 yards, it's not critical. I believe because they can hear or see where it drops. When you go greater than 200 yards, blood trail is extremely, extremely critical. And it starts to become a factor. People are not used to hearing if-then statements presented to them. Uh, they like absolutes, like we have to make the news easy. Uh, but this is not easy. Uh, the answer is blood trail does matter if it's beyond 200. If it's under 100, the data shows that it's not. So you could bend this either way. But the reality is We've all been on our hands and knees looking for pin drops of blood, and we know how damn important that is whenever you are three or 400 yards away. So the data certainly supports that, and I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Uh, where the, when the signal really jumps out, and this is, this is crazy, how was the blood trail versus the broadhead you were using? A two-blade expandable, 45% of the two-blade expandables were rated at the highest rating of blood trail quality. The two blade fixed, 23% were rated at the highest quality of blood trail, were rated a four. Um, at multi-blade expandable, meaning there's more than two blades and it's expandable, 44% of the hits were rated the highest quality blood trail available. Uh, on multi-blade fixed, it's almost dead even. 20% was rated one, 25% was rated two, 27% was rated three, and 27% was rated four. It's almost like well, it is literally flipping a coin whenever you're dealing with a fixed broadhead. You're, the two-blade fix is 24, 23, 30, and 23. So if we just kind of round down to make life easy, regardless of the fixed broadhead you use, if you flip, a, you know, flipping a coin would be 50%, you got a 25% chance of a, good, of a good blood trail, no matter what, is what this is suggesting. If you move to an expandable, the two-blade and the multi-blade give you 45 and 44%. So their distribution looks, a multi-blade is 15% are rated poor, number one, 21% rated two, 21% rated three, and 44% are 
were rated the highest level of blood trail. So this is where blood trail, which is not a leading indicator to recovery unless it goes long, uh, broadhead type is a leading indicator to blood, blood trail efficacy, quality. Does that make sense or did I just run too many numbers out? No, no, that makes total sense. And I, I mean, really what it sounds like it boils down to on some of that is don't, don't get too wrapped up in what broadhead you're using. Just shoot the one you're comfortable with because it doesn't make as big of a difference as maybe some people think on the fixed blade. Well, I mean, on the fixed blade, yeah. And then on expandables, if if blood trails are important, go there's a clear signal that expandables have something for you there. Well, and I mean, you know, one of the reasons I like a mechanical is I can't, when you've seen me in action, I will run an animal down hoping to stay on the animal more than the blood because I cannot see blood very well. And so I have to have the most blood possible um, in case something goes a little sideways or whatever. Um, And this is where, you know, I really want people to understand is, is like, you know, for me, if, if I, the majority of animals I've shot have died within hearing distance, which even if I get a little confused on the blood trail or what, you're going to find it, right? You might have to look a little bit more, but fairly quickly, you know, you can grid out something a hundred yard radius pretty quickly. Um, it's when, right. you know, after that, I think you said 200, but I, you know, I always say if you haven't found it in one to 150, right. shits might go sideways on you, right? Like you, something's gone Yep. terribly wrong and that's where the extra blood can can help um but when you look at this in 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 for example what would you choose right now um cody greenwood what would you choose right now for a broadhead if uh you know we're heading out next week on an elk hunt pick three am i shooting a compound or am i shooting a compound or a treadmill a, a treadmill i don't want to i don't want to put that hex on you treadmill so, yeah, so a trando, I'd shoot a, a multi-blade fixed. That's my option. So what would be your number one? If I was shooting a – if I did – like by brand? Yeah. Or by design? Uh, brand or design, both. So I, I like so I like multi-blades because I, I haven't been able to prove to myself that four, three or four blades create uh, – Surface area causes problems with broadheads in terms of resistance. Cutting edges don't. So if you have a lot of surface area on a broadhead, it, it requires a lot of push force. But I, I've been shooting a lot of pigs with, with you know, wasp pavilons and not having problems with penetration. So I'm very comfortable with, with multi-blade fixed. Um, I choose iron wheel because I've shot the most animals with iron wheel. If I'm going on an elk hunt, it's probably expensive. I've probably driven a long way, and I'm not going to take chances. Uh, that that doesn't mean I can show a statistical difference with iron wheel because I absolutely can't. But that's that's you asked me for my choice. That's my opinion. Nobody pays me for my opinion. That's what I choose. Uh, I've used it quite a bit. Uh, if I'm hunting hogs or something like that, I obviously am not going to use an expensive bed. If I were shooting a compound, I would be moving just because it's undeniable that they produce better blood trails. I would be moving to a mechanical. I have no idea which one because I I've only tested them in a lab. I haven't. I've shot one animal with with a sever out of a trad bow, and other than that, I, I don't have any experiences with, with mechanicals. Gotcha. All right, I will not uh, slow you down anymore. Go ahead, keep going. All right. So outside of that, uh, sticking along with the, the the theme of the blood trail, obviously you can buy better blood trails by choosing broadhead design. But what's good for recovery is also good for blood trail in terms of shot angle. 
uh, the same distributions that we look at, quartering away 33% of your blood trails, quartering away, regardless of what bow or broad end you use, are rated the highest quality rating. The, uh, the next competing with that is 29%, I'm sorry, 33% for your frontal. So a frontal is almost all or nothing because you, <laughs> you've got 27% is your worst and 33% your best. So obviously if you rip through its, if you get through its heart, you punch the old drank plug out. You, you got it. You got it. If you miss that heart, it's kind of an all or nothing deal with the frontal. Uh, with broadside, you only get 29, 29% show, uh, the highest quality. And, um, so I, I think those are very telling if you are focusing on the the submetric of blood trails. And if I were going to focus on a on a submetric other than recovery, um, obviously blood on the ground is is always better for me. Whenever I'm crawling through ticks and snakes trying to find something. Next up is the big debate that everyone is going to yell about. That's fine. I think I can believe in data versus people. These are p- people's experiences. This isn't lab work. This isn't something I did and anywhere else i'm just reporting the news here percent of bones impacted 59 percent of all the bones impacted in all of the data were ribs 59 percent people just had to deal with ribs 59 percent of the shots for recovery if you look at the next up which is 7.6 percent it was the scapula but not the t of the scapula we did we did take the time to say, because, you know, saying I punched through the scapula is one thing. Punching through the T of the scapula is a whole other thing. And I think people get confused with, oh, I couldn't make it through the scapula. Well, did you go through the T or did you go through the flat portion? 7.6% had to deal with the scapula. And this, this was really, they did a good job of breaking this out. We have ribs and scapula. We have ribs and T. We have leg and knuckle. 2.8% hit leg and knuckle. If you want to build your entire arrow system, around the knuckle, 2.89% of people recovered an animal that was hit through their leg and knuckle. If you want to build your entire system around that, more power to you. I'm, I'm going to go after the higher probability shots. Um, the scapula in the T is 2.27, and then um, you have uh, combinations of the different bones there. But for me, I think this was a big red flag. We pers- we spend a larger percentage of our time in social media talking about heavy bones, but we spend a very little portion of our time going through heavy bones in real life for the people that actually are out there killing animals. 59% of the time, you're going to be punching through ribs. This should help you make a broadhead choice. Any questions there? Not really questions. So, you know, comment wise, um, the, without going down to deep, dive recently in the in the past you know couple years there's been a you know a little bit bigger craze for this you know super heavy foc and uh fairly heavy arrow weight to extreme heavy arrow weight and uh that that's kind of what's needed and and uh you know to to kill an animal or that's more preferred and i'm more of a happy medium guy i'm i'm not really you know it's kind of like uh politics right if you're extremely far to the right or far to the left I just kind of consider you a wacko, right? And and there's got to be right, like right. A, a, a center. Yeah, you're wrong 50% of the time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you go so far to the extreme to where, you know, you think there's only one way um, and you you stand on, on your, your soapbox and just preach that over and over and over, there's probably something flawed with that. And, and what I mean by that is you do not need 
a 320 foot per second arrow to kill anything. And you do not need a 650 grain arrow to kill something. And when you break that into like just sheer numbers, if you are setting your arrow up to shoot the leg bone and meaning full penetration, small cutting diameter, three to one ratio, whatever other shit you're reading about, the chances of you hitting that leg mathematically, if you just take the animal and break it down, is so much two point six percent. It's two point six percent off of your off of your data. And then if you're like, well, what? Screw data. Just look at the animal. There's not as much leg as there is gut, liver, right? Like you have a higher probability right. of hitting liver, diaphragm, stomach, large and small intestine. And when you look at that, if you've set your arrow up to go through a leg bone, but you hit stomach, there's not as much damage done because it's a smaller cutting diameter broadhead in comparison with a larger cutting diameter broadhead doing more trauma, the animal will not go as far. And so setting your arrow up to go through a leg bone or the T of a scapula is just fucking stupid. It just, it just is because there's not... There's, I like how eloquent you were. I mean, <laughs> well, you summarized it the old Canadian way. I, I just, <laughs> I've shot 90 to 100 pound bows a lot of my life. And even with those, it is almost impossible to get to the T of the scapula or the knuckle. Now, somebody told me a story once of somebody was shooting some setup and, and did make it happen. Well, that's awesome. That one time. Yeah. But if you run mathematically into those different scenarios of how many, well, you know how much I'm involved in with hunting and, and guiding and things like that, as well as Rotier and Scotty and Nestor, all these different friends of mine. More than most likely when I hear a story, it is not we hit the leg bone. In fact, I would say 99% of the time is I hit it back. I hit it back. I hit it back. Not I shot it straight in the scapula. The other thing, too, is when you do hit it in the scapula, since there's such a small probability of going through the pucker, the animal's generally fine. He's got a flesh wound, and he walks it off. That doesn't happen on the back end as much. And so even if you have a super souped-up arrow to, to go through the T of the scapula, you have a very small fraction of percentage of that actually going through, but you have a really high percentage of hitting far back. And when you hit far back, you want more devastation. So anyway, go ahead. Oh, absolutely. So let, let me give the, the actual numbers here. So I've broken this down into the bones based on arrow weight, and I've created one, two, three. I've created five categories of arrow weight. I didn't. My I broke it down statistically in how they broke down. So when you look at arrows that weigh 325 to 477 grains, you're going through the um, leg and knuckle there's an example here of 7.41% went through the leg and knuckle and recovered the animal. Now, remember, this data doesn't capture what we didn't recover. When you go all the way up to 760 grains, that leg and knuckle goes jumps from 7.4% to 10%. 10% of people made it through the knuckle and recovered their animal with the most extreme heavy arrow I have, which is 760 grains. The, the last category is 592 to 760. The happy median is that 477, 510, 510 to 553. And we're talking about single digit percentage points, one to two. But how many people have shot under their animal because of trajectory issues? So the bottom of this says 
in the 551 animals taken, there is absolutely no evidence that would support anybody sacrificing trajectory for a, a capability of for heavy bone because it just doesn't show up. It's, it's the most easy signal to see out of these experiences that we've collected. So that one, that's, that's going to create some problems. Yeah. I don't know how much it's kind of weird. Cause like I'm, you know, I don't know you, you know, I'm friends with a bunch of different people all over the, the spectrum. Um, I, I have just found that, you know, if somebody is a fan of fixed blade broadheads and shoots with a compound, no problem. Within reason, you need to shoot, your bow needs to be very tuned, maybe shoot a little bit slower. And, you know, it's not going to be as accurate as mechanical because you've got big wings off your fixed blade broadhead. But mechanical failure, obviously not an issue. And if you do clip something you might not want to, you got a higher probability of going through it with a fixed blade. Mechanical, easier to get to fly if your bow's not quite tuned and potentially more blood trails, more devastation, depending upon what you're shooting. The thing is, yep, though, if you, you know, if you hit them correctly, all of these things are taken away, right? They, it, it doesn't really matter as much. It, well, then you get into the, the, if the animal moves, and depending upon where you hit it, once it's moved, your data has kind of shown that whole leg scapula thing is not happening nearly as much as when you look at it. What was the percentage of animals hit back towards... Um, well, liver, small, large intestine, um, stomach, compared to forward up into the shoulder neck. Uh, I didn't. Ha I don't have it split that way, but you, I have it uh, as it's categorized here. I have it based on um, knuckle and whaling. See if I have organ. I'd have. To, I have some organ information, but I would have to go get it. I won't be able to do it off average speed. But I guess to, to point out what you're saying. The leg knuckle is the smallest occurrence, but it does account for by far the large, longest average rec recovery. And when I say by far, it's times four. Your average recovery for those for that uh, for those impacts is 561 yards. Yeah. The next longest recovery is 177 yards, which is the scapula, T, and leg knuckle. The third longest recovery is ribs, scapula, or on T. It's it's that significant, followed by. Uh, coming into the scapula from the rear from the opposing side at 150 yards. But the, the outlier, the massive outlier, is hitting that knuckle those animals run forever. So this would tell me that I need to stay away from, from, from that approach. Um, I don't have uh, organs but or where we missed left and right. I do in that ETAR study, but not on these live animals. So I can add that uh, next time or try to harvest some, some, some indicators there. Well, I think what I'm hoping from this podcast, um, one, you get more data from people listening in that, that uh, you know, can, can give you that. So where, where would people get you that data? So datakills.com is the form where we have it right now. Um, they, are, they are updating it next year, so it'll have more broadhead detail. But if people are willing to save that on their phones and fill out those questions while they're out there in their field, uh, in the field that that will add to this and, and it, it's extremely valuable data because every year we get more and more and more and more data that can, turns into more solid information and uh, as we see that it's it's just going to be harder and harder to <clears throat> to focus on the wrong things but uh, if, if people go to datakills.com 
they should be able to see the form and they can fill that out for us. If it's not up for some reason, I can talk to Ben uh, about that and, and get it up, but it should be, it should be up and running right now. So, you know, when you, when you look at this um, and, and let's just, we'll use my season last year for some of the examples um, out of the first seven animals I shot, mm, six of them were on a frontal or cornering two. Um, out of all of those, one, my broadhead, I don't know if it hit a branch or whatever, it, it was up into like the neck area and they, it, the broadhead the arrow basically fell out. But the, you know, the first animal I shot was an antelope frontal. The next animal I shot was an elk with, these are off of memory, I'm leaving some out, but with, with uh, south, that was a 17-yard frontal. Recoveries on both under 100 yards. Um, then I shot a mule deer bedded on a frontal. I shot, the outdead doesn't really count because that was more in the neck, but uh, it was like seven yards away. Uh, three whitetails on frontals. Um in, in this case, what I'm leading up to is, one, I take a lot of frontal shots. Two, I'm very confident with them. But out of all the frontals I've taken in the last five years, there was one that went bad. And when it went bad, I hit the shoulder. The good thing about that is the animal was basically fine, right? It, we saw it three days later. When I say fine, you know, you don't ever want to wound an animal. Saw it three days later. Having a, a caveat to that or, or making sure putting things into perspective, it wouldn't have mattered what I was shooting with that shot. I wouldn't have found it, right? I, I hit it in, in a bad Absolutely, yeah, it's all or nothing. Yeah, it's a, it, it was a muscle wound. When you pivot that animal broadside uh, or is cornering away, this is where your broadhead choice can come a little more stickier, meaning um, do you shoot a larger mechanical? Do you shoot a fixed blade? And really the, the big debate is going to be, especially off your data, um, is okay. Am I shooting for the shoulder blade or am I with my worst case scenario being the shoulder knuckle or the T or am I setting myself up for a happy medium, potentially, you know, the stomach or small and large intestines for a higher probability recovery from that? Am right. I, am I making sense so far? No, makes perfect sense to me. And with all of that and in everything that you have found, what would you say for stories you hear, the ones we're not talking about? Where are the bad stories coming from? The scapula or the stomach? Oh, by far, it's the stomach, right? Yeah. In terms of the higher probability of occurrence, it's by far. Because, I mean, that's why I choose a multi-blade fixed when I hunt hogs, because they spin so much. Regardless of how accurate I can shoot, I can have them at 15 yards. Those hogs, can, they have spun 180 degrees. We walk up to a hog and the arrow's gone around the world and hit him on the opposing side that we thought he would because he spins so much. So I have very little control over where that's going to hit. And just when you look at the surface area of the animal, what's my highest probability? My highest probability is hitting a lot of soft tissue and guts. And I want as many blades as I can going through that. That's my choice. Yeah. And I mean, if, I, mean if, if I, I think when you, when people get really wrapped up into the FOC thing and everything else, I, I, I strongly encourage people to look at more of a happy medium arrow setup. It solves a lot of problems. Um, you're not lobbing logs. You're also not shooting a bow that is extremely difficult to tune. And, and your data shows that really doesn't matter anyway. So you might as well have a decent amount of speed behind you. What is difficult with this is people a lot of times don't tell the truth and collecting the data of 
non-lethal, meaning when I say non-lethal, collecting data from people of bad experiences and actually getting a straight answer from them is difficult. Um, and from my experience, right? I mean, it, it is difficult to hear the exact story of what happened when somebody does not find an animal because it's hard for men especially to say, I fucked up. And But there's a lot of data there that would be interesting to dissect if we could get it to. Yeah, because, you know, you, you opened with the ETAR study. 28% of people could hit the 3D target, and it doesn't jump the string. There's no branches. Arrows are bouncing off of. It didn't spin. You, you very hear, you very rarely hear someone go, man, I shit the bed on that one, right? It's always, oh, I hit a twig, or the, it spun, or, you know, something to that effect, or it's the broadhead's fault. And what I encourage people to do that, that want to argue with me, and it's, to what I've done, I went out and picked a Havilon uh, multi-blade broadhead to shoot pigs with out of a 41-pound recurve, not because I thought it was the best, because I genuinely believed it may not be the best, and I wanted to prove it to myself. And then when I started dropping hogs with it, I realized that, all right, my beliefs are based on things I've read that are, may not be based on actual experiences. And that's what changed my mind. And I always recommend people, hey, go, go buy a broadhead you don't think is that great and go go take five animals with it and see if it's different from the five animals you took with your most favorite favorite broadhead. And you may be surprised that broadhead's not as significant as you think it is. Let's look at, um, you brought up I, on the podcast I did before you earlier this morning, um, they were talking about they sell a lot of Magnuses. As you know, I've shot Magnuses and you, there was two, the, I guess it would be the Magnus Stinger, um, which is the yeah. kind of vented, it's aluminum ferrule. It's kind of yeah. a piece of shit, but it's very lethal, but it's not very yeah. durable. Very lethal. Um, it's just no, it's not very durable. And I mean, that's, you're going to spend a lot of time sharpening it and resharpening it, right? Uh, so the one that right. I was shooting is, which one is it? Which, uh, Man, which one was it I killed the buffalo with? Um, stinger. Was it a stinger? It wasn't a buzzcut. It was a regular stinger. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And then you have something. We, we used a lot of broadheads, but the, the stinger was the one you, you dumped it with. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It happened to be there when you shot. Yeah, that just was in the qu the quiver. But then when you look, and the only reason I'm bringing this up, when you look at higher dollar broadheads, Using them over and over is one of the benefits, um, you know, what they're made out of, that, that they're not going to crack on a bone, things like that. So, like, right now, somebody said, Aaron, what is the most, uh, the best penetrating broadhead I have ever shot? And it would be the cutthroat and the iron will. Those are the two best penetrating broadheads that I've shot. And there's other ones that are as close, if not right on par. I don't mention those because they're kind of, a one and done broadhead. And I don't know if you are agreeing or disagreeing with what I'm saying, but you can get away with a pretty cheap broadhead. Uh, if you put a little work into it, it's going to be lethal. Like there's, you know, the thing is, is longevity, durability, resharpenability, things like that. And people get, you know, the art of sharpening a broadhead isn't something a lot of people want to do. Um, yeah, I mean, no. talk about your findings with some of this because you and I went round and round, not in a bad way, just bullshitting about broadheads, three blades, two blades, things like that. Well, so I mean, it's if you break it down into what what's a broadhead's job? A broadhead's job is last creating lacerations. Lacerations kill. Penetration doesn't. Um, uh, and I'm going to speak before I, some of the research that I'm that I'm going to refer to right now is not complete. So I'll tell you what I'm working on. If you take and measure what I call the sum of laceration. So whenever we hit these hogs, and I'm not lazy, 
I'll open these hogs up and I'll measure every cut that I find and I sum, sum, sum those. And I have a total sum of lacerations. The hogs that have the best blood, the hogs that recover the quickest, have a higher sum of laceration than those that didn't. So I'm choosing broadheads that cut more, to put that simply. And you would be shocked at how many times I've opened up a pig and where I should see a lung cut, that lung's not cut. So there are broadheads that after they go through the hair, the bone, the shield on a hog or whatever, the force to cut the broadhead versus the force to move or cut the organ versus the force to move the organ out of the way is greater. And where lungs should be cut, they are absolutely not cut. And, and when I first saw this, I couldn't figure out why. And, and you know, when a broadhead gets dull, it will move slimy, malleable organs out of the way. Now, the heart is really rock solid and right there where it needs to be. So are kidneys. And the other organs are kind of snotty, and they move out of the way. And, and I'm shocked how often they're not cut. So a broadhead with a refined tip and a razor edge will require less force to cut that uh, organ. And we think of force in terms of penetration, like it's not resisting the arrow. But think about a slimy lung. It does not take much for that lung to move out of the way, and you're not getting a cut at all. And whenever I started looking at the sum of laceration, I had to start immediately paying more attention to the quality of the edge of the, of the broadhead. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. No, it makes total sense. And, and so whenever I'm going on a hunt where I'm, you know, let's look at my last bear hunt. You know, I drove from Kansas City to Saskatchewan, burning diesel, the cost of the hunt, the cost of the drive, the cost of the week of the vacation, cost of food. I don't want my broadhead to get dull on bear hair and go in there and move a lung out of the way. And so I, I choose a broadhead that has, that can retain an edge. At the current state and time, Iron Will retains edges better than several other brands. So, but if I'm out shooting hogs or, or damn sure turkeys, I'm not taking an Iron Will, right? I'll, I'll go for, I'll compromise at a lower cost. And I'll put more elbow grease into getting those refined edges. But edge quality is more important, I believe, than, than we give it credit, whether you're shooting a compound or not, because organs can move out of the way. And they've proven to me they, organize, they move out of the way whenever you open the animals up. And I would encourage everybody, as you're processing your animal, to kind of pay attention to that. You might be surprised that you, don't, you didn't cut as many things as you thought you would have. Yeah, no, that makes... You're probably going off base here a little bit, but that's, that's what I'm working on right now. I don't have a lot of data to support that, but my degree of belief and my theories are all down that path. Yeah, no, no, that makes total, total sense. Um, where is there anything else you want to hit on or, or cover before we hop off here? That's, that's the show. Uh, I would encourage, uh, you know, leveraging you, obviously, uh, getting people to load more data and maybe we'll remind them before hunting season is really beneficial. I'm not selling this data. I'm not, uh, I'm not benefiting in any way. This is going right back to the community in terms of information. I'm not biasing it. I guess the only sell I get is whenever I promote, you know, the pusharchery.com on here to selfishly. But in terms of this data, it's not being leveraged for marketing. It's not being leveraged or biased in any way by any broadhead maker. Uh, it's community data. It's being analyzed and sent right back out to the community. We held on to it actually until we could get on this platform so more people could hear it in one shot. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Well, I appreciate you hopping on the podcast, obviously, and uh, your friendship and uh, 
obviously good person to bounce data off of. It's always fun kind of figuring, getting to the bottom of certain things. So yeah, but uh, everybody, uh, it would be great if you could enter the data through this hunting season and get it to Cody. That would be awesome. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Yep. No problem, man. Take it easy. Take care. Whether your hunting passion is Western big game, Midwest whitetail, sheep hunting, waterfowl, upland, or a mix of everything, Black Ovis is where you'll find hunting gear that performs and stands up to the demands of your hunt. If it's not a piece of hunting gear we'd use, it doesn't belong on Black Ovis. We earn your loyalty with wicked and fast free shipping, unmatched customer service, hunting gear and field knowledge, and a selection of hunting supplies that is the envy of any hardcore hunter. Black Ovis is your home for solid hunting gear. Give us a call or check out the website at blackovis.com.